1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: I want people to remember Carter for who he was. He was the happiest little boy. So incredibly full of life and so excited to just do everything.
3: That's Amber Vi. She's talking about her son, nine-year-old Carter. He died earlier this month in 100 Mile House, British Columbia. His parents say he suffered an asthma attack made worse by wildfire smoke. I'm Michelle Elliott, sitting in for Laura Lynch. This is What on Earth? where we bring you a world of climate solutions. It's been a summer of smoke for many communities in Canada. As climate change supercharges wildfire season, we're looking at the impact on health and at how to protect the most vulnerable in our own lives and as a society. But first, let's hear more about Carter Vi. And a warning, this story is difficult to hear, but his family is sharing it for a reason.
2: Tuesday was a normal day. He went to camp with me. We spent the day together. The smoke wasn't too bad. Like, it was... Uh, super, super low that morning, the smoke rating. And so we went to the park and he played in the water park and played on the playground, played with all his friends. And then when we went to leave around 12 or 12.30, the smoke had gotten worse.
3: Carter spent the afternoon indoors.
2: He took his puffer a couple times throughout the day, which was not unusual with the smoke and the heat. And summer just seemed to bring out his asthma that much more, but he had a great day. Like I had no indication that he was struggling in any way. He was happy and running around and playing and just enjoying life.
3: And then they headed home.
2: He sat on the couch and was playing on his tablet and just hanging out with everyone while I got dinner ready. And he just started having a coughing fit. We gave him his coffer, did all the things that we had normally done. Um, We got him to concentrate on his breathing. When he finally, it seemed like he was calming down a bit, we put him in the bath because that was his thing. When he was having an asthma attack, once we got it under control, he always wanted to go in the tub just to cool his body down because you get so worked up in that moment of panic. So he went in the tub and I sat there with him. He said he was feeling better. And then he just started coughing like crazy again. And we knew that he needed to go to the hospital.
3: Amber says doctors and nurses and paramedics did everything they could to save him.
2: They couldn't. All of the nurses, everyone that was in there was just sobbing. They were all so professional and worked so hard. When it was all said and done, they were A wreck.
3: The BC Coroner Service is investigating. And after Carter died, the coroner delivered a strong public warning about the dangers of wildfire smoke. Amber and Carter's father, James, they're sharing their story to spread awareness.
2: I'm hoping that people realize how quickly it can turn because we had his asthma under control we were so diligent as he was like and how fast he, things can change like when i when i carried him out from the house to the truck he kind of like of looked up at me and he's like oh man he's like i don't like the feeling of this i mean he suffered with it for nine years And the fact that he said something like that after nine years of already struggling with it,
4: leads me to believe that he knew this time was different.
2: He was the best, the sweetest, and a smile that would light up a room full of a million people.
3: And as these parents share their heartbreaking loss, we want to pursue their warnings. For more on the dangers of wildfire smoke and how to protect vulnerable people like Carter, I'm joined by two guests. Christopher Lamb is the president and CEO of the BC Lung Foundation. And Dr. Emily Brigham is a respirologist and an assistant professor of medicine at UBC. Hello.
1: Thanks for having us.
3: Hi. (sighs) Thanks for having us. I can hear the sigh, uh, Doctor Brigham, and you, and uh, it is just heart wrenching to hear that. What a tragic loss for for the family uh, and and the community. What went through your mind when you heard Carter's story?
4: I just, I mean, I'm I'm crying. I'm a mom. Um, I can't imagine Me going through that. Yeah. I just, I my heart goes out to them. Yeah, and I, I just have to say thank you so much to Amber for speaking on this and being so eloquent and um, taking the opportunity to try to get the message out to others about the dangers that exist. It really does
3: cut so close to the heart for parents uh, like you and me and and yourself, Christopher.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, it's, it's gut-wrenching. Um, I have a five-year-old who, as a toddler, uh, struggled uh, with breathing issues as well. Um, And we know firsthand how things like this can change so quickly. Uh, And the strength of those parents uh, is is really an inspiration. And I want to make it abundantly clear that Carter's parents did everything right. Uh, They did everything they could in those moments. It really does highlight the importance for all of us uh, to understand how quickly this can change and and how devastating the impact of it can be on all of our health.
3: Um, And and Emily... How much has wildfire smoke contributed to those problems?
4: Well, it's, it certainly is something that asthma exacerbations um, really are a product of multiple exposures many times. And so each individual who has asthma may have different sensitivities and being aware of what those are and trying to avoid them to the degree that you can is really important. And I just want to emphasize what, what Chris was saying too, is that this, this family is so educated and really did everything that they absolutely could and still we're seeing this. And it just really points out how susceptible some members of our community are and how we really need to wrap around them, make sure that they have access to every resource possible that we know that can help and support them in deploying those resources. How
3: much has increasing wildfire smoke, increasing wildfires, how much of a concern has that been for you personally and for the BC Lung Foundation?
1: Oh, it's a tremendous, tremendous concern. I think we all know unequivocally at this point, wildfires and fire season is going to become more and more frequent for all of us, particularly here in British Columbia. Uh, And it becomes a great concern. Uh, When wood burns, it burns at a particulate matter that's so small that it gets uh, right through whatever we would consider a natural filter would be on healthy lungs, uh, and as uh, Dr. Brigham is suggesting, that impact exponentially on children is dramatic. Uh, and and it comes at a time, too, especially with kids and asthma, where we often uh, deal with this type of stigma, that they'll grow out of it, uh, that it's okay, that it's not as big of a deal. Uh, and that's simply not true, especially when compounding issues like wildfires become more frequent. Uh, And it results in greater levels of exacerbation than we've seen before. Uh, So it reminds all of us that we need to be almost more vigilant around kids with asthma and all vulnerable populations, really, because this is something that didn't happen with the same frequency that we dealt with previously.
3: And people across Canada have become used to keeping a closer eye on air quality readings, especially this summer. And so, I want to ask you about how adequate our monitoring is. In One Hundred Mile House, where Carter's family lives, uh, there is no air quality monitoring station currently, uh, specifically there. The closest one is in Williams Lake, nearly one hundred kilometers away. How does that sit with you? Is that enough?
1: Without a doubt, that is inadequate. Uh, and, and there's ways around this. And and the reason why I'm I'm adamant that this is inadequate is that much as Carter's parents identified, and much as we have also all experienced ourselves, uh, smoke can move and change very quickly. Situations, depending on wind and weather, uh, traffic patterns even, can change so many impacts of that. Having their closest air quality monitoring station over 100 kilometers away, both to the north and to the east, uh, really doesn't serve the people of 100 Mile House. I'm, I'm... somewhat familiar with the people of 100 Mile House, and I know that they're a strong community that are going to help Carter's family, and I'm so appreciative of that. They deserve better than that. Uh, And and there's ways to do that, whether that's uh, the provincial government or the federal government putting in more air quality monitoring stations, uh, which probably should be the baseline. Uh, There are ways that citizens uh, in rural areas can uh, check their own air uh, through uh, third-party applications Uh, things that you can buy at Home Depot today, uh, things you can order online, uh, different monitoring stations that will really arm not just them, but their neighbors uh, around what their air quality situation is and allowing them to make those decisions.
3: Emily, I'll ask you as well then, how adequate is air quality monitoring in this country?
4: Yeah, so I agree with everything that Chris has said about the adequacy of air quality monitoring, that really there are gaps in our monitoring systems that exist not only within British Columbia but really across Canada um, internationally this is not not something that's unique to to Canada in particularly and unfortunately a lot of the areas that have lower density of air quality monitors don't have ones close by from the government are areas that are more rural and maybe uh, some lower income areas and so really to advance health equity um, and environmental health equity we need to know the quality of our air around us um, and the first step with that is making sure that we have high quality air monitors. Government monitors are perhaps the most rigorous and the most trusted. And so it's ideal to increase the density of those monitors when we're thinking about other types of monitors that are sometimes being used to fill the gaps in between where government monitors exist. And those include things like Purple Air. And if you, if you go online to Purple Air, there's monitoring networks, there's researchers who are using these and testing these. These are personal
3: monitoring products.
4: Exactly. Mm. Personal monitoring products. It's, not clear how accurate these are in comparison to some of the government monitors. So there's questions there that are being looked into. Oftentimes it's all that people will have. And because these are deployed more widely and their per, uh, personal monitors, you can see them and get some information from them. These do not monitor the gaseous components. But if I'm making a decision on my own and I'm in an area where there are no government monitors that are within Uh, a certain distance of me that are close to me. And I look outside and I don't see smoke. And if you see smoke or smell smoke, you know that the air quality risk is very high, but I don't see that. And there's a purple air monitor near me that is showing higher levels. I might be more cautious because of that. And so Mm. every additive piece of information could potentially be helpful Mm. while we are working to fill these gaps.
3: Uh, Christopher, just last year, the Northwest Territories introduced uh, a community air monitoring program using that, the the Purple Mm -hmm. Air products, uh, with monitors being provided by the federal government. Uh, How useful do you think these could be uh, across uh, rural communities in particular?
1: I think it's a fantastic initiative. It's something that we're advocating for here in British Columbia. Uh, particularly, as you mentioned, in rural communities, because uh, there is such a black hole of what that information and data that's provided to citizens can be. Uh, I couldn't agree with Dr. Brigham Brighamore around uh, there are limitations uh, to what those personal air quality monitors can be. However, they do give you pieces of information uh, when used properly, when used to spec, when calibrated properly. Uh, they do tell a very good story, especially around air quality. Uh particularly during wildfire season. Uh, I've said recently that blue skies can be a red herring. And uh, that really mm. is a, a statement really around the fact that you may not always be able to see the dangers that are around you. And, and because they're happening so frequently and because there are other issues in the air, you really want to know what you're breathing. And uh, that can really have tragic implications if you get that wrong.
3: Um, and Chris, the HEPA, Filter air purifiers. And, and we know that they can help so much during times like these, but they are pricey. They are. And in BC, we have rebates for electric vehicles, for heat pumps. And uh, the provincial government, uh, in a statement to us, uh, has referred to a new pr- a program that they have uh, through BC Hydro investing $10 million for its portable air conditioner program to provide free AC units and that can act as air filtration. Um, But what, uh, what should governments be doing? Should there be widespread financial support specifically for air purifiers that have HEPA air filters?
1: Without a doubt, uh, some sort of subsidy or a grant or a rebate uh, around air quality specifically, I think, is really important. And and I think it's fantastic that they have the air conditioner program that they've just announced. It is going to help a lot of people. Uh, it really is important that you have uh, the right graded filters if you are looking to purify your air while also cooling it through that. So what does that really mean for us? I think as British Columbians, as Canadians... We should uh, look at having rebates around how can citizens protect themselves uh, without a doubt with the frequency of which these events are happening. Uh, there is a much longer and larger picture that needs to be accounted for about climate change. But in the meantime, uh, citizens need to be armed with ways that they can protect themselves in the short term. Uh, it's all of our responsibilities to do that and making sure that that's accessible and equitable to everybody. Is, should be paramount at this point.
4: I was just going to say the Canadian revenue uh, agency actually has, um, medical expenses for patients with a prescription and noted severe chronic respiratory disease, you can actually get um, a tax credits for uh, purchase of an air cleaner. So very important for patients mm-hmm. who have severe chronic respiratory disease to know that. You can also get uh, partial tax credits for an air conditioner through that program as well, and to make sure that you talk to your doctor about that and get prescriptions.
3: Okay, that is important to note. Uh, We have found as well uh, in B.C. and Nova Scotia, there have been uh, rebates for select energy efficient air purifiers. Now, I'll ask both of you, uh, these past few days, uh, they have brought record breaking heat uh, across not just Canada, but across the world, really. Um, And it is officially Canada's worst wildfire season on record quite early in the season as well. And as you've touched on, we know climate change is making all of this worse. How do we make the future safer for kids like Carter? Christopher?
1: Uh, That's a tremendous question, and I wish that uh, we could sit around this table and and solve climate change. I I wish it was that easy. Uh, The truth of the matter is it's going to take a lot of efforts, uh, both at the personal level all the way up to the policy level, uh, without a doubt, there are solutions on the table that make a lot of sense it's It's really going to be how do we make wider spread uh, adoption of those, uh, whether that's the electrification of our of our country, uh, higher adoption and rebates around that uh, there there are tons of things that we can do, uh, but our, I think our focus really at this point needs to be what do we do in the short term? Uh, the short term really can provide. Uh, some devastating consequences if we're not paying attention to this. And I think it's accelerating at a rate that we really have to pay attention.
4: So everybody has to do their part. And that is really at all levels. We have to think about individuals doing the best that they can to reduce
1: their own carbon footprint,
4: how much emissions that they're putting in. Think about more plant-based diets. Think about active commuting where you can. But it's very much at the government, at the industry level as well. We need to stop putting in new fossil fuel infrastructure, hard stop, right? We are seeing what this is doing and this is, it's so tangible right now. Um, I I really think that our governments need to meet the commitments that they have made um, to climate health moving forward. I'll also add at the end as well, um, ever since hearing about Carter's story and what happened to them, I have been reading the news stories online and there are various links to a GoFundMe page for Carter's family. So um, to those who can, I would encourage you to do your part and donate to them as well, just as we talk about community and support.
3: I so very much appreciate speaking to both of you. Uh, thank you for for sharing your your personal responses, your very personal experiences and your thoughts on on policy as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. We reached out to the governments of BC and Canada regarding those concerns about air quality monitoring. The province tells us that although it doesn't currently have a monitor at 100 Mile House, it "...evaluates monitoring proposals presented by local governments and community stakeholders on a continuous basis." And the federal government says it's always seeking to improve its overall services to Canadians. To that end, Ottawa says it's working on a pilot project with the University of Northern British Columbia to provide low-cost air quality sensors to rural communities." And the province says it's working with some local governments to monitor air quality using those Purple Air devices you heard our guests mention.
4: Paper or plastic?
5: Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast
4: Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavour to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to
6: podcasts. You're
3: listening to What on Earth? I'm Michelle Elliott in for Laura Lynch. Okay, for our next story, we're heading to a farm in Newfoundland with CBC producer Caroline Hillier. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Michelle.
6: So, are those chickens? Yeah, those are chickens. (laughs) About 1,200 of them, actually. Uh, They're a day old, and they've just arrived on a flight uh, to Newfoundland from Ontario. Oh, my God. I can't imagine what that even
3: looked like. (laughs) That's a long way to go, Ontario to Newfoundland, but that... It's kind of the story you want to tell, isn't it?
6: Yeah, well, most of the food here in Newfoundland and Labrador comes from out of the province, often by truck. But there's a movement to change that and allow more local farming and things like those chicks we just heard to make Newfoundland and Labrador more self-sufficient as the climate changes. Right,
3: because when extreme weather happens, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, you really see how fragile those shipping chains are, I imagine. And uh, we know extreme weather, that can only lead to more food insecurity.
6: Exactly. Mm. And just in the past few days here, farmers and food growers have made what they're calling an urgent call to the provincial government to remove some of those barriers that people face when they're trying to grow their own food. In a lot of towns in Newfoundland and Labrador, keeping those backyard chickens or other homesteading is actually not allowed. Oh, well, I remember that debate here in Vancouver. And uh, you
3: can now have backyard hens here and other, some other cities in B.C. as well, but certainly an ongoing debate elsewhere. Okay, well, let's get back to the barnyard. Here is Caroline's dock, Farmer's Island.
5: Truck is not clean. This is a farm truck. (laughs) (laughs) So you can't see no animals. You can't smell nothing from from the road. So my animals are way up there in the trees. So this is the place that we're trying to shut down in summer for The chicken coop and turkeys all there together. I got the ducks pond and, and ducks down there.
6: Come on, girls. Come on, girls. Frank Brown is grabbing handfuls of wilted lettuce out of containers covered in pink 50% off
5: stickers. The goat up there, the billy goat, he's named after the cold water cowboy, Morse Anstey. Uh, there's a, a little lamb there named after Counselor Newman. There's a, another one there named after the mayor, Kevin. Another one named after Councillor Harness. My, my uh, granddaughter's name is Summer. She's named after one.
6: Frank Brown runs Larissa's Farm and Hatchery, a small-scale commercial farm in Summerford. It's a quiet rural town of about 900 people in central so, Newfoundland.
5: This island, island across here is called Farmer's Island. This harbour coming in here... It's farmer's arm it goes right into the cove.
6: In the summer, Frank's animals move to agricultural land just outside of town, but most of the year they're here, up on a hill, off a side road, surrounded by trees with no neighbors in sight.
5: Yeah, like what's not to love about them? Like, like if you got a bad, stressful day, if you come up here for an hour, like it relaxes you. And you know, everybody got a bit of stress. And right now, the town council's adding a lot of stress to the local residents of Summerport.
6: A few weeks ago, Frank Brown was served papers from the Town Council of Summerford. His partner, Sian Rousel, first opened the envelope. Okay, so it's stating here. And whereas the town council of the town of Summerford is aware that you are building and or have built a livestock structure barn or on near your property at 38 Village Colville West Inside an order to remove Frank's animals and barn. The town plan doesn't allow for any livestock in town limits. And that means no backyard chickens and certainly no commercial farming. And it says here, and further take notice that if the removals are not completed by June 5th, 2023, the town council of the town of Summerford has the ability under section 1025 of the URPA to carry out the removal of the barn and the removal of the livestock and recover the costs against you as a debt owed to the town council of the town of Summerford. Restrictions like these are common in small towns, although not often enforced. Newfoundland and Labrador has high rates of food insecurity, and the province depends on food supply chains that are becoming more fragile as the climate changes. Frank says town restrictions are counterproductive to food security.
5: Today, well, it's the farm. It's the main source of income.
6: After years of working on farms in Alberta and as a commercial fisherman, Frank invested in this farm and had plans to keep growing it.
5: This is it and I've gone too far in now to turn around and back out of it. So you can't just get rid of 120 sheep, you know, and 10 or 15 goats. And this year is the first year that I've ordered vegetable plants off agriculture in Wooddale. I uh, I just had 20,000 plants come, cabbage and turnip and onions, so...
6: This isn't just a job for Frank. It's a way of life and a way to produce his own food.
5: Well, I got 10 or 11 freezers, and they're most all the time full. I don't buy any meats from the store. I don't buy no eggs. I don't buy no vegetables. We go to the store for basically the basics, flour and salt, pepper, whatever. But we don't buy a lot of stuff at the store. Uh, we take most of that at the water or off the land that we farm. Frank appealed the order, and it's now before the courts. People start contacting me, and well, we just kind of went from there. And then everybody and their dog been contacting me to want getting involved. And there's lawyers contacted and wanted a copy of our removal order. So everybody that want it, we're just getting it to them, because yeah, we're not stopping. Right now, we're organizing protests. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Outside the town hall, about 30 residents are waiting in the rain. They're here for a public town council meeting. Frank isn't the only one here arguing to keep his animals.
3: I'm same with Frank, so I was on council and the same.
6: Julia Hawkins has a pet pony named Sparks, who lives in a barn and goes for walks on a leash. Julia was on council just a few weeks ago, but resigned after being told Sparks had to leave town. So I resigned because I had to fight this as a resident.
3: Which I was talking to the mayor and he said, of course, that's what you should have done. And I got one
5: pony. Like, I can't even, I don't even compare to these guys. Everybody, we got support right across Canada. I've got over 2,000
3: emails. And today actually a lawyer contacted me,
6: Frank,
7: from Ontario. So
3: she's going to give me a call and uh, just talk to me about some free legal advice.
6: Other residents like Katie Anstey and Shane Hillier were also issued orders.
7: You guys, you guys had animals? Yeah, so we had three pigs last year and we had 12 hens
6: yeah.
7: and rooster. And, and so what happened? We were issued the same removal uh, that Frank and Julia received this year. So we got the same mm-hmm. paper last year. So we had to remove all of our animals. If we did not comply, our structure would be torn down um, at our expense. So we actually just bought our home two years ago. So it's a very big regret that we decided to be here in Stamford because this is a dream that I've had for my whole life, right? To provide and you know have a sustainable life we're uh, you know we have an acre and a half we're trying to create a more organic lifestyle for ourselves Um, with the raising food food prices it's just you know the next best step Uh, and I think COVID really drove that home when you couldn't uh, get your you know necessities and I think that opened up a lot of eyes for people and well, it's looking about near damn impossible right now. <laughs> it looks pretty like a pretty bleak future for us here in Somerford at the moment.
5: Like, what are you going to do, tell us to leave again? Like, where are all the people are, Kevin. The
6: meeting is about to start, but council won't let everyone in.
5: There's, there's more than 22 people. The residents of Summerford would like to attend this meeting, and they'd like to be able to attend in... In the building that could accommodate everybody. So. Frank
6: is demanding that the town open up a bigger room in the community
5: hall next door. And he wants to come to the council meeting. The council meeting is public. Is it not? Yeah, but there's only so much room. But you got a building right there, you got lots of accommodations. Yeah. If he's not going to open up the building to accommodate all, the residents of Well, oh, you're going to open it up. I guess I guess it made sense. Well Frank, you
1: got it your way. You can't refuse us. One one.
6: Once the meeting starts, council approves a couple building permits and mentions donations for its summer festival. Then, it's Frank's turn to speak.
5: Animals have been a part of summer board since the first day. When you was a boy, head around shore, it was cow paths. It wouldn't even roads. The animals the animals rolled the roads. The animals today is pinned up in gardens. They're fed, they're watered, and every, and and they're looked after. It's not like they're out starving to death or or you know crap all over your lawn. Since I was four or five years old, I had ducks, I had chickens, I had everything else. I've had cows, I've had goats, I've had sheep, I've had pigs. I got a donkey. I got dogs. I got a cat. And my boy even have a pit lobster in the War. So today, I'm here fighting for my animals. All these people here. Is here to back up everyone else in this community that wants a chicken, if he wants a goat, if he wants a cow, if he wants a horse or a pig. They're here supporting, and there's many more people in this town that would like to have animals. This is rural Newfoundland. This, this was re, re, these communities was built around fishing and farming. This is what this was all about. So as a council, we never had an order of choice.
6: Mayor Kevin Barnes says the issue with the animals is simple: the current town plan does not allow livestock in residential areas. And after a complaint came in about animals in town, the council had to act on it.
5: We had to do what we had to do, and that's not saying that there's nothing that's going to be changed. Just the fact we have got to go through a process in order to change the town plan. Plain as simple as that. We got to do. We got to do due diligence. We got to do. We got to go through. That's not saying that we're not going to allow anybody to have chickens.
6: The town of Summerford declined multiple interview requests on this, but say there have been complaints from residents about livestock in residential areas. I asked to see those complaints, but was told they're confidential. An official told me the complaints are related to odors and animals getting loose. In this meeting, Mayor Kevin Barnes adds that the town isn't against farming. It even considered changing the town plan to allow backyard chickens. But until those changes are made, livestock is not allowed in the We've town. Got
5: to go through the process. In order to change the town plan you got to go through a process.
6: That so isn't good enough for Frank.
5: If, if he wants to have animals on that land, which your forefathers had, he should be entitled to them. Because there's a municipal plan or whatever in place, that don't mean a in this room tonight. And God bless you all.
0: You So uh, I'm Nick Fairbridge. I'm a research associate with Memorial University. I'm also really interested in community research, what communities are doing about food production. So we're going inside uh, our 800 square foot uh, full season greenhouse.
6: The controversy in Summerford doesn't surprise Nick Fairbridge. He did an exhaustive review of all the provincial and municipal regulations related to agriculture in Newfoundland and Labrador. He found that outdated standards are hampering efforts to promote
0: food security and food equity. Uh, I did a review of all municipalities, read through all 160 different regulations we have in the province, uh, and most communities are very restrictive. Um, and ultimately, uh, individuals uh, often forget that these development regulations exist. Some of them are, in the case of Summerford, almost three decades old. And those councils often are forced to uphold the regulations of different pieces of legislation and regulations. And town councils are so lost in terms of how to actually walk that path and what could they do.
6: Nick says the problems can be traced back to an archaic piece of legislation the 1947 Agriculture Act of the UK, which applied to Newfoundland and Labrador before it joined Canada a few years later.
0: Just because something's old doesn't mean it's bad. But in this context, their definition of agriculture is all-inclusive. It doesn't distinguish whether it's commercial from personal. It doesn't distinguish anything to do with the scale or the type.
6: Because of those old definitions and laws, in most rural communities in Newfoundland and Labrador, gardening or homesteading of any kind is technically
0: not allowed. But the way it's written in that kind of legalese jargon of uh, it ends up blocking uh, every fruit tree, every raised bed and everyone. And so when one person in the community perhaps takes it too far or there's a complaint that comes in. Uh, Once the council's aware of the issues, they then have to act on everything. They're they're held to uphold those regulations. Uh, And one of the things we see, or I saw throughout uh, these regulations, is very clear indication that they're kind of just making it up as they go. Uh, They're trying their best, but we see them modifying things like animal units. Uh, So on your drive up to visit us here, As you pass through different communities, uh, what is considered an animal unit of chicken probably changed from 20 up to 1,000 chickens, counting as one animal unit. And then that has regulatory implications, and that could change whether what you're doing is compliant or non-compliant.
6: Nick says it makes for an arbitrary, uneven playing field, and that the provincial government has a role to play in finding a solution.
0: There there could be changes to either Municipalities Act or especially the the Planning Acts, the Urban and and, uh, Rural Planning Acts, uh, to really set those guidelines, because they set the whole field of what can municipalities do, what should they be doing to regulate.
6: Just recently, a group of farming advocates called the Killick Coast Agricultural Advisory Committee called on the provincial government to amend the Urban and Rural Planning Act. The group says, quote, inconsistent interpretation and enforcement of municipal plans, bylaws and financial penalties are interfering with food production and creating conflict within municipalities. End quote. The group is also calling for new policies to, quote, enshrine and protect local food production on both residential and agricultural lands for the good of all, end quote. It adds that the future of the province depends on gardeners and farmers to continue to rebuild food security in local communities. Nick Fairbridge agrees and says Newfoundland and Labrador isn't the only place struggling with what to do about backyard chickens and vegetable gardens or with home farms like Frank's. But Newfoundland and Labrador has some of the highest rates of food insecurity in Canada, with fewer grocery stores and fewer farms.
0: Oh, We ship in most of our food. It is the short. I mean, the history, uh, the census of agriculture comes out every five years. And unlike many other provinces, our farms are closing at a remarkable rate. We've gone from uh, over 4,000 farms to just over 400 farms in the last number of decades. And really, we're losing about 20% of our farmland and 25% of our farmers every five years.
6: Nick says regulations are a small part of this. It's also because of demographics, cost, and other factors. Uh,
0: So in a state where our population is still growing, Newfoundland's not the largest, but we are growing... Uh, it's a pretty uh, unfortunate state in that we, both Labrador is rural and remote. Uh, Newfoundland itself is an island. So we're very reliant on on large shipping lanes that are disrupted uh, through things like Snowmageddon uh, or other issues. There's certainly, we're not at risk of starvation by any means, but it is a concern.
6: Snowmageddon, as Nick mentioned, was a massive winter storm in early 2020 that shut down St. John's. Towns called states of emergencies, roads were blocked, stores were closed.
0: So it is something looking ahead. Uh, We're reliant on the ferry systems, we're reliant on air to bring it in. And that's where we are different than places like uh, Ontario or Alberta, where they have multiple routes to get into their province uh, if needed, and better connection to the other provinces uh, to bring food back and forth.
6: Climate change experts warn that Newfoundland and Labrador will see more extreme weather events. As waters get warmer, hurricanes, like Fiona in 2022, are able to travel further north and come with more intensity. Floods, erosion, snowstorms, fires can all stop food from getting to its final destination. And that's not the only reason Nick is dedicated
0: to growing more local food. It's, it's not always just about surviving the worst case scenario. It's also just about what kind of community do we want to live in. I would like to live in a community where I know where my food is coming from, where I can go to a local mart, right, support uh, those local people. Uh, and I think that's what we can build for. You know, planning for the worst case is important, but I think better is to build a Canada that we all can be part of and want to be part of.
6: Nick does live in that kind of community with a town plan that allows for farming and animals.
0: Harbour Main, Chapels Cove, uh, Lakeview, where we're in right now, is a bit unique, is we're one of only three communities in the entire province that is fully permissive to residential or urban agriculture. So when you drive up and down, if you take a moment uh, in the community, there's goats uh, and sheep and alpacas, chickens all over the place. You'll often have to swerve around the odd goat or or goose uh, and, and bees all over the place. And so there's just an opportunity where the whole community Really, just that opportunity to create uh, local industry, local interest, give people a reason to stay.
6: Nick says if municipalities like Summerford, where Frank Brown is,
0: encouraged and allowed farming, it might even boost the population. Summerford uh, is a great example in that the census shows that they've been shrinking regularly every five years. If they want a future, right, looking at, well, what keeps young families, what keeps people, well, being able to grow your own food, being uh, able to really live that rural lifestyle is one of the draws uh, that we could tap into and create more cottage industry, more opportunities in in these communities.
6: The provincial government has made a commitment to becoming more self-reliant when it comes to food. In 2022, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador reported that over the past five years, the province reached its goal of doubling the amount of food it produces commercially. But Nick has done his own research to find out how much food is being produced outside of the
0: commercial sector. Uh, And because so many people know they're breaking a development regulation or don't, uh, it's done in quietly in backyards and in garden plots. Um, And we don't have that number uh, at a provincial level. Uh, and we, I think we really need to, because that's what's going to help force when we say, well, look, actually, it's, it's a huge act of mass civil disobedience. We're doing it anyway. We have the chickens where people are growing potatoes. Uh, let's let them do it, because they've been growing potatoes here for, in this community, for 325 years. So we documented 500,000 pounds of food being produced outside of the commercial sector from only 750 people. Uh, So if we could scale that up, even if 1% of households in this province could get involved at that level uh, of food production, uh, we'd be talking millions and millions of pounds of food.
6: Nick plans to put more pressure on the provincial government to help municipalities change rules and town plans to allow and even invest in local food production.
0: Especially COVID and other things brought so much interest in in food sustainability and people wanting to get involved in what we could have been doing for hundreds of years uh, and should have been doing in, in... in growing some more of our own food uh, and our regulations aren't there yet. We need so much more to, to really bring them up to speed.
6: Frank is not waiting for
5: those rules to change. We'll just open the boxes and have a look at a few just to make sure they're alive and lusky and, and out in the truck and some forward we go. Despite what he
6: heard in the town council meeting yesterday, Frank is at the Gander Airport picking up more than 1,200 chicks that just arrived in cargo crates on a flight from Ontario. So where are all these uh, chicks headed?
5: They're headed to Summerford today. Hopefully by tomorrow night, they'll be all to their forever homes and in 20 weeks, they'll be laying eggs.
6: After the town of Summerford asked Frank Brown to remove his animals, he added more.
7: You right? Yeah.
6: People line up outside Frank's chicken coop. They're holding cardboard boxes, poked with holes. I'm feeling great. It's all excited. you're so cute.
5: I just moved back from Ontario. My plan when I retired was to have some birds, have some animals, and I intend to.
6: And how worried are you that you might someday get a removal order? No, not the least bit.
5: I have the space, I have the animals, I'm not bothering anybody.
6: Frank is waiting on the appeal process to determine exactly what he'll do about his animals. But he insists they won't be leaving town.
5: The only way those animals is leaving here, you get to take them over my dead body.
6: Frank and his supporters plan to keep protesting outside any council meetings. They hope to make changes, not only in Summerford, but in other rural towns in Newfoundland and Labrador and even across Canada. um, For now... He's sending residents off with their new chickens.
5: There's a demand in, in central Newfoundland on the coastlines for eggs that we cannot meet. And people want fresh, they want local, and they want stuff where he knows where it came from. Not off a of shelf in a grocery store that's a month old. Like, stuff got to change. It got to go back to the way it was in the 1800s, 1900s when when our forefathers settled these towns.
3: I can imagine how exciting it must have been to go home with a box of little chicks. But then it's a lot of work. I don't know. Then you get some fresh eggs, though, so maybe all the work is worthwhile. (sighs) Thanks to Caroline Hillier, who produced that documentary. With help from Alison Cook, A.C. Rowe, and John Shipman at the CBC's Audio Doc Unit. CBC reached out to Newfoundland and Labrador's Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture on this story. And in an email... The department told us that it's working on guidance for municipalities about rules for agriculture. And the department says, quote, "The document will outline acceptable farm production practices and animal husbandry and environmental protection requirements." We have time now for a few more climate stories in the news this week.
0: A hot summer afternoon in Arizona, black asphalt can get to 170 to 180 degrees, which is just a little bit below boiling. And hot concrete or sidewalk or other types of pavement will get to 160 to 170 degrees.
3: That's Dr. Kevin Foster, the director of the Arizona Burn Center in Phoenix, where his patients suffer third-degree burns from scorching pavement. Phoenix is among many places around the world shattering heat records. The World Health Organization is warning of a new reality of killer heat waves and extreme weather and says that should serve as a wake-up call for global climate action. The world's two biggest economies, U.S. and China, restarted climate talks in recent days. They ended, though, without reaching an agreement that the U.S. had hoped for. The United States is calling on China to take faster action to cut emissions and phase out coal. Chinese President Xi Jinping said that China would follow its own climate plan on its own timeline. Together, the countries put 40% of the world's greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And you know that sunshine yellow spice you often find in curry dishes? Turmeric contains an antioxidant called curcumin, And Italian researchers have released new findings that curcumin can ward against coral bleaching caused by climate change. The researchers say their findings, published in the journal ACS Applied Materials and Interfaces, could offer a new biodegradable and biocompatible solution for coral bleaching. Curcumin and coral? Who knew? And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Before I sign off, I want to let you know about what the team is working on for next week's show. We'll take you on a trip to the place where rivers meet the sea. Estuaries. They're a critical nursery for baby salmon. And like so many places... They're set to transform under climate change. We'll pull on the hip waders and meet the people who are trying to protect those waters and figure out what these young salmon need to thrive, for now and in the future. That's coming up on next week's edition of What on Earth. And remember, you can listen to all our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker and producer Rachel Sanders. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer with help this week from Edzio Lovren. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Michelle Elliott in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
1: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.